Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. So our theme is Life and Death. On the 27th of September last year, uh, there was great excitement in our family because uh, there was a new baby boy born in our family, our first grandson. And there he is, Sammy Kite. As you can see from the photo, he was uh, premature. He's just over five pounds, so not a bad weight, but he had complications uh, at the moment of birth, and so they kept him in hospital for a few days. But it's uh, amazing the amount of excitement and joy that little child has created within our family and with my daughter-in-law's family as well. He's the first grandson. And uh, so everybody's very excited. I'm pleased to say he's uh, a bustling one-year-old now who's uh, getting more and more mobile and causing havoc in his uh, home. But uh, he was special to us. Now, as a baby, he's just like any other baby. There's thousands and thousands of babies being born all the time. But he was our baby. He was a kite. He was our family. And uh, it seems to me that uh, God, who is the creator of all human beings, uh, he, is, he is the one who gives life. He is the father of all creation. If we get excited about one new baby, how excited is God about every human life? And how much does he value every human life? We're continuing in a series called Follow Me. Uh, we've been looking at the Lordship of Christ And Christians often find themselves at odds with the world's values. We've compared it to swimming in this vast ocean where currents are going in different directions, and some of them are very strong currents. Occasionally, we find we are swimming in the same kind of current as the world, but often we're having to swim in the opposite direction. When we make key decisions about our lives... Are we basing those decisions on the Bible and what the Bible teaches, or are we just going with the prevailing cultural norms? So we're looking at life and death, and in particular, the beginning of life and the end of life. This is often referred to as the sanctity of life, and the phrase sanctity of life reflects the belief that because people are made in the image of God, all human life is special and should be respected at all times. However, society's views have changed quite a lot in recent decades. And these issues around the beginning of life and the end of life, uh, society's views are changing around those and are frequently at odds with the Christian perspective. One of the things that has become much more commonplace today is abortion. Over the recent years, it's become more and more the case that people are having abortions. And I just want to say right out at the outset, this is a sensitive subject. It generates a lot of heated debate. But this church preaches God's forgiveness and God's grace. I want to say that we have all fallen short of God's standards and we all need forgiveness. In John chapter 8, when Jesus was confronted with a woman who had been caught in adultery, Her accusers wanted Jesus to condemn her, but he refuses to do that. And he says to the accusers, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then to the woman, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. So there is forgiveness from God, but we also have a responsibility to try not to repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. 
Since the Abortion Act came in in 1967, there have been over 7.5 million abortions in the UK. That is nearly the equivalent of the population of London. The original intention of this law was to allow abortions to take place under certain limited circumstances. But today it is so easy to obtain an abortion that sometimes it's regarded as an alternative means of contraception. We virtually have abortion on demand today. At the other end of life, the concept of euthanasia is gradually becoming more familiar. In September, MPs overwhelmingly rejected legislation to bring assisted dying into England and Wales, into the law. They had an impassioned four-and-a-half-hour debate, and members voted by three to one against giving a second reading to a bill which would allow terminally ill patients to be supplied with lethal doses of drugs. I want to start by looking at what the Bible says about how God views our lives and find out what value he places on our lives. And then I want to touch on the themes of abortion and euthanasia, which are enormous subjects and I can't possibly do justice to them in one session. But then finally, I want to look at how we should respond to these issues that we've been looking at and raising this morning. So let's get straight into what the Bible says about the way that God views human life. First thing to say is that God values all human life. In Genesis 1:26 and 27, we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. So all human beings are created in God's likeness. Therefore, they should always be treated with dignity and respect. Secondly, we find in the Bible that God holds us, he holds our lives in his hands. Following the flood in Noah's day, it was clearly established that God would judge anyone who took somebody else's life. In Genesis 9, 6, it states, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. So again, uh, the Bible emphasized the importance of being made in the image of God. But later on in Moses' day, God reserves the sole responsibility for life and for death. In Deuteronomy 32:39, he says, There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. The same understanding is restated in Job 12 and verse 10. In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. And similarly, Paul is preaching in Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 25, when he says, God himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So the Bible consistently teaches that it is God who holds our life in his hands. Thirdly, we find from the Bible that God knew us before conception. Isaiah 49.1 and Jeremiah 1.5 make statements about the calling of these prophets uh, and God's calling them even before they were conceived. So in Isaiah 49.1 we read, Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. And in Jeremiah 1.5, God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you 
as a prophet to the nations. So those two prophets have been individually uh, earmarked for a particular ministry even before they were conceived. But then in the New Testament, Paul expands that to all believers in Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 where he says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus. We also find in the Bible that God knew us when we were in the womb. And the primary text to look at here is Psalm 139. Verse 13 onwards says, For you created me, My inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139 is not a biology textbook. It is poetry. And so you get this imagery of being knit together in the womb, of being woven together in the depths of the earth. And the writer is affirming that this process of embryonic development is neither haphazard or random or automatic, but it is a divine work of creative skill. In other words, God is involved with us a long time before we are actually born, that he is involved with us in that process of pregnancy. The writer of Psalm 139 considers himself to be the same person as he was in the womb. So as an adult, he's the same person as he was then. So there's no difference between the pre-birth person and the post-birth person. From Psalm 139, we learn that the writer has a personal relationship with God, which starts even before birth. God loved us and related to us long before we were conscious of him. You may remember that interesting little story in Luke chapter 1, where Elizabeth, now pregnant with John the Baptist, meets up with Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus. And the two mums-to-be get together. And in verse 41 of Luke 1, It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Somehow, John the Baptist, still yet to be born, recognizes that he is in the presence of Jesus, the Messiah. And there is this sort of moment that happens where he leaps in the womb. John Stott helpfully summed it up in this way. He says, what makes us a person then is not that we know God." but that he knows us. Not that we love God, but that he has set his love upon us. So each of us was already a person in our mother's womb because already then God knew us and loved us. Fifthly, God determines the number of our days. I've heard people say on many occasions, you know, so when my time's up, my time's up. It's time to go. There is a sense in popular thinking that you have uh, a certain number of days on the earth and that somebody else somewhere is in control of that. And the Bible affirms that kind of idea. So if we look at the book of Job, a couple of verses coming up on the screen, I'll just read the second one, Job 14.5, which says a person's days are determined. 
you have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. Similarly, in Psalm 31:15, my times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. And then in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the writer talks about a time to be born and a time to die. These are some of the scriptures then that inform us about the way that God views human life. Now let's try and apply this biblical perspective to two issues, the issue of abortion and euthanasia. So first of all, issues surrounding the beginning of life. And the key question here has to be, when does life actually begin? And in our society, there will be all sorts of responses to that. These are the possibilities. First of all, life begins at conception or fertilization, the moment of union between the human egg and sperm. That's one possibility. Some other people might say it was a little bit later in the process, implantation, the stage at which the fertilized egg is implanted in the womb. Others would say slightly later, tissue separation, the time when tissues in the fetus separate into different types. Some people would argue life begins when there's brain activity that can be seen. Or later on, viability, the stage at which a fetus can survive outside of the womb. And then, of course, many people would say, well, it's at the moment of birth. That's when life begins. Well, the Catholic Church teaches that the embryo must be treated as a person from conception. And I think many Christians would agree that life begins with fertilization and would view that as an early and fixed point. However, as I've researched this, it's not universally the case that all Christians would take that view. And uh, they argue for slightly different stages, but the vast majority would talk about life beginning at a very early stage of pregnancy. In his helpful book, Issues Facing Christians Today, John Stott acknowledges that abortions take place for a range of reasons. In a large family, for example, he says there may be financial demands. It seems impossible to feed another child. Or the mother is the wage earner, the main wage earner, and cannot afford to stop working. Or maybe the husband is violent or cruel. Or having a baby would end any opportunity to continue in education or career. Or the pregnancy might have been due to adultery or rape. He also acknowledges that abortion is more of a women's issue than a men's. In this sense that she has to, she's the one that's been made pregnant and she has to go through the pregnancy. And then probably will uh, have the main burden of childcare as the child grows up. I think I'd want to add that men uh, also hold some responsibility and can put women under pressure sometimes to go through with an abortion. The original legislation in 1967 uh, said that two doctors were allowed to carry out an abortion under limited circumstances. First of all, when the mother's life is in danger. Secondly, when where continuing the pregnancy would involve greater injury to her physical or mental health than having an abortion. And thirdly, where the child would suffer from severe mental or physical handicap. In the last couple of years, Department of Health figures show that only 1.3% of pregnancies are terminated on the grounds that the child would be seriously handicapped and less than a quarter of a percent on the grounds to save a mother's life. 
So something like 98% of all abortions take place on the grounds that continuing with a pregnancy is more dangerous to a woman's mental or physical health than having an abortion. We have moved a long, long way from the original intention of the Abortion Act. Today, we virtually have abortion on demand. What about issues surrounding the end of life? It was some eight or nine years ago, I think, that I got a phone call from a good friend of mine. And he asked me if I would take a memorial service, a Thanksgiving service, for his sister. I believe she was in her 40s. She'd been suffering from serious illness for some while. And what she decided to do was that because she couldn't face her ongoing sickness, she took herself off to Switzerland. She went to the Dignitas Clinic and she ended her life. And I saw at first hand the confusion and the devastation of that family uh, trying to work out why she'd done that and why she hadn't talked to them. And it was a very distressing time for them. Euthanasia and the practice of euthanasia is already uh, illegal in some countries around the world. A number of different terms are used to describe euthanasia and they all have subtle differences. Terms such as assisted dying, Assisted suicide, mercy killing, death with dignity, voluntary euthanasia, and physician-assisted suicide. Euthanasia is illegal in Britain. To kill another person deliberately is murder or manslaughter, even if the other person asks you to kill them. Nevertheless, the authorities may decide not to prosecute in cases of euthanasia after taking into account the circumstances surrounding the death. Within English law, there is a difference made between passive euthanasia and active euthanasia. Let me give you an example of passive euthanasia. On the 15th of April 1989, 96 people were crushed to death and a further 766 people were injured in the Liverpool-Nottingham Forest match at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield. One of the fans that was at that match was a young man, 17-year-old man called Anthony Bland. He was severely brain damaged in that disaster. His parents and the hospital authorities sought permission from the high court to withdraw the artificial support that was keeping him alive. Eventually, in 1992, the high court and the House of Lords agreed, and so Anthony Bland's life came to an end. So passive euthanasia is when treatment to which the patient has not consented, is ended. In contrast to this, active euthanasia occurs when treatment is administered with the intention of ending the patient's life. And there is a growing pressure to legalize active euthanasia in the UK. I think, like many people, I would have a, a real genuine concern that if euthanasia is legalized under certain limited circumstances, in another 10 years, 20 years, it will become more and more commonplace, which is the pattern that we've seen with the Abortion Act starting in 1967, and abortions becoming far more common. How do we approach this topic of euthanasia from a Christian perspective? From a Christian perspective, liberalizing the law on euthanasia would be hugely problematic for at least three reasons. First of all, we've already said human life bears God's image. And so our significance doesn't come from quality of life or our gifts and our abilities, but it comes from our status of being made in the image of God. Secondly, 
We are part of a community. John Donne said, no man is an island entire in itself. Uh, everyone is a continent, a part of the main. And the fact is that when somebody decides to do away with their life, it has a ripple effect, has a, a very devastating impact on others around them. I remember vividly uh, taking a funeral service in a crematorium for a young man who had committed suicide. He was a prison officer in one of the London prisons. And for whatever reason, he had come to a place where he felt he couldn't continue his life. And the crematorium chapel was absolutely packed. His family, his friends, his work colleagues were all there. There were so many people there that many of them had to stand outside and just listen to the funeral service. It was a raw day. It was a raw emotions being felt in the room. And you saw how much it impacted the rest of that community. If only he had realized that those people cared for him uh, while he was still alive. Maybe he wouldn't have taken his life. But none of us are isolated. None of us are independent. We are made to be part of a community. That's how God has created us. Thirdly, people should not feel pressured to go through with euthanasia. At present, if you're a burden on your family and the state and you have a sensitive conscience, you don't need to feel guilty about being a burden to anyone. If euthanasia became available, though, that there would be this legally approved option that you could take and there would be pressure brought to bear on some of the most vulnerable people. The Bible encourages us to care for the vulnerable, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the UK leads uh, in the world, really, in the provision of hospice care and palliative care. Uh, there's great strides being made in recent years. Any legislation for euthanasia would discourage further advances in that area. So our lives are not our own. Human life is not our property. Our lives are meant for the service of God. It is not for us to take life, even our own life. Well, I've been a pastor for long enough to know that it is easy to develop a nice, tidy theology in splendid isolation. And that finely worked out view unravels as soon as you face a real person in a real ethical dilemma. Real situations rarely fit neatly into the theoretical frameworks. So how are we going to respond to a message like this? I think four ways, potentially. One response might be that you are sitting here feeling, I would like to get involved actively in the political arena to try and bring pressure uh, to change some of this legislation or make sure, in the case of euthanasia, that it doesn't develop further. And there are many agencies, good Christian agencies, that are campaigning in that arena. And I'd encourage you to do some research, if you feel God calling you to do that, to get involved. Secondly, you might feel stirred to get uh, actively involved face-to-face -face with people that are going through these kinds of dilemmas. And you might feel called to get involved with a pregnancy crisis organization or to volunteer as a, as a hospice at a hospice just to help at uh, that end-of-life moment. Again, there are lots of excellent Christian agencies doing this work, and uh, I'd encourage you to do some research and get involved if that's what you feel God is calling you to do. Thirdly, it is possible that there is somebody here today and you're pregnant and you're agonizing about what to do. Uh, you're being perhaps put under some pressure to have an abortion. I'd urge you to speak to a mature Christian woman, to a pastor or, or somebody outside of your family circle that can give you good counsel. 
we would recommend uh, an organization like The Gate at Westminster, which is a pregnancy counseling service and crisis service. Uh, and details of that are in the notice sheet if you want to access an organization like theirs. We also offer pastoral support here at the church. And so I would encourage you to talk to a pastor. And regularly we do have uh, pastoral clinics uh, for confidential one-to-one appointments. Uh, Next one's coming up at the beginning of December. And again, details are in the notice sheet. Fourthly, though, it may well be that you are here and you have in the past. You've had an abortion or your partner's had an abortion. And you recognize that there needs to be genuine repentance And you also need to embrace God's forgiveness. And maybe emotionally, in different ways, you're still impacted by the decision you made a while back. I would, again, encourage you to find pastoral support and help. Uh, And there is a course at Holy Trinity Brompton called the Post-Abortion Healing Course, which is incredibly helpful and seen some of the testimonies from some of the women that have been through that. The next course starts on the 25th of January, which is a Monday, And again, the details are in the notice sheet if you'd like to examine that and see more about how that works. I think as I draw to a close, I want to point us back to the cross. Because all of us here have fallen short of God's standards. All of us have sinned. None of us is in a position to judge anybody else. We all need to come to the cross. We all need to repent. We all need to submit our lives to Christ every day. It may be that you're here today and you're not sure, you're not certain that you are following Christ. You, you wouldn't call yourself a believer. But what you've been hearing is that you're made in God's image, you're valued by God, and you love that idea of being valued by God. In fact, you're so valued by God that Jesus made provision for you to have eternal life by dying on the cross for you. And maybe today this is a moment where you just need to take that next step of faith And I'd encourage you to talk to one of the leaders, one of the pastors, one of the people that you know is a believer, and I'm sure they will help you take that next step of faith. You are also perhaps concerned about the way things are going in society to do with the beginning and the end of life and the decisions that are being made. So the idea of sanctity of life should motivate us in a positive way to be compassionate towards the vulnerable, to care for the sick, to attend the needs of the elderly. The sanctity of life should motivate us to combat all forms of evil and injustice that are perpetrated against human life. And that can be in the area of domestic violence or violence or abuse or oppression, human trafficking, as well as abortion and euthanasia. Let us not lose sight of the fact that we are made in God's image. Let us recognize that we need to try and stand firm on a biblical foundation and to make godly choices. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love each of us individually, that you have known us from the time we were conceived, and even before that, in some mysterious way, you talk about knowing us before the foundation of the world. Lord, we thank you that our lives are precious in your sight and every life is precious in your sight. Lord, today we pray for those that do face and are facing and have faced real dilemmas about the beginning of life and decisions about beginning of life and end of life. Lord, we pray for your compassion and your love and your care. 
We pray for an ability to turn away from making decisions based on our own thoughts or the world's thinking and to come back to biblical standards and a biblical foundation. We pray for the the people that make the laws in our lands, for the MPs that have to make these difficult decisions and go through these debates. And we pray for a society that would continue to be very compassionate towards those that are vulnerable. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and we say, Lord, thank you that we have someone who is uh, for us, who loves us with an everlasting love and values our lives so much that Jesus died on the cross for us, that we might have forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you, Lord. Amen.